a podcast. Did your radio show get canceled? Fire, fire, fire. Low down and filthy, but the discipline is on point. Schooled myself, made my own dojo. A cold flow with the whole dose of soul. Maintain composure, even in fury. An anomaly, properties undiscernible to mere... Welcome back to the Pete the Planner Show. Your money questions answered. That's right. Uh, let's get started. The first question we're answering today. As always, if you want to email us a question, have your question read on the air or uh, at PeteThePlanner.tv, email us at AskPete at PeteThePlanner.com. That's AskPete at PeteThePlanner.com. Let's get started. Dear Pete, I read your recent column about advisor's fees and I wanted to run my situation by you. We have a portfolio in excess of two million dollars. Our financial advisor charges an $1,800 annual flat fee. The portfolio has grown in the past two years over 20% with income over $100,000 a year. Our advisor fee seems far less than your article portrays as the standard. What is the difference of someone who gets 1% of the account versus a fixed fee? And this is from Kathy. All right. So uh, my recent column in USA Today talked about a standardish fee for someone to manage your money is about 1%. I mean, it can be less than that if you got a lot of money. Uh, usually it's above a million. It falls to around uh, 75 basis points or 0.75%. Um, if it's less than 100,000, it's going to be 1%, even up to 1.5%, sometimes even to 2%, which is too expensive. Uh, but what Kathy's indicating is she's got 2 mil. And she, uh, she pays $1,800 a year, 150 bucks a month to have someone manage her money. That's ridiculous. That is a point, I did the math here for you. I did the math for you. It is 0.09%. She's paying 0.09%, not 0.9%, 0.09% to have her money managed. So here's the question that we're really answering here. Why does it cost the same to have someone manage $2 million as it would to pay someone uh, to manage $200,000? Like, what's the difference? And the answer to this question is hotly debated within the financial and investment space right now because let's be honest, if you're purchasing someone's time to manage your $2 million portfolio, why does that time cost more than manage the $200,000 portfolio. Now, there's, there, it's important to establish what an investment advisor does, right? I mean, I, I'm not here to throw anybody under the bus, so we need to take a look and say, what, do, what exactly does an investment advisor do? Well, a number of things. Also, by the way, uh, it's important to acknowledge that the Securities Exchange Commission, one of the regulatory bodies in the financial space, they define an investment advisor's role as, wait for it, an investment advisor gives a client advice about investments. <laughs> Nicole, that's absurd, right? Yes. I mean, like, I I didn't study a lot in college. You didn't? And if I went to a finance final in my college finance course, yeah. and I was asked, what does an investment advisor do? Do you know what I probably would have written in the blue book? Advise investments. An investment advisor gives a client advice about investments. <laughs> Yet this SEC... That's what they've come up with. Good job, SEC. Here's um, a golf clap for you. Yeah. 
Excellent work, SEC. But, here, but here's what a financial advisor really does, or, or an investment advisor, I should say. They help a, a client evaluate their risk tolerance. Um, at various times in my career, I found this to be a very practical thing, uh, a very helpful thing. And now what I've come to understand for the client's best interest, risk tolerance is crucial. I used to think when I was an investment advisor that risk tolerance was really to protect the advisor. I talked to a lot of advisor friends back in the day and, and even our compliance department would say, make sure you fill out the risk tolerance and keep it in your, your client folder on your client file. Why? Because if uh, the market goes down and the advisor or the client says, hey, uh, I, this is against my risk tolerance. You just pull out the risk tolerance. I'm like, no, you're wrong. It's right here. So we used to think, I used to think that it was about protecting me, the investment advisor. Here's what I've come to understand because, well, I've grown up, as you can see via the hairline. I think risk tolerance is really about making sure the client can get the most bang for their buck, right? So the client doesn't have the anxiety that comes with being invested incorrectly, which then will change uh, how they behave and that behavior can change their portfolio and that portfolio will then underperform because it's constantly being diddled with. That's right, diddled with. Diddled. So uh, understanding your risk tolerance is super important and it's more important than I used to think it uh, was something like that. Also time horizon, uh, a good investment advisor will help you understand the time horizon for your money. They will help uh, assess your investment knowledge. This is important too. Obviously you go to your investment advisor because the investment advisor knows more than you do, but you have to have a certain working understanding of how all this stuff works. And if you don't, maybe you shouldn't be in some of those investments. It's the old, you, know, you, sh you shouldn't invest in something you don't understand. That's a little too cute. You are going to invest in things you don't understand because why do you have time to invest all the, and understand all these things? Uh, they'll also need to understand your tax situation, a good investment advisor, your family considerations, and your investment objective. That's what a financial advisor does. So here, here let's, we're going to use a hypothetical here. Let's say it takes 10 hours a year, 10 hours a year for an investment advisor to do that for you. By the way, it doesn't take 10 hours a year. 0% chance it takes 10 hours a year to do all of those things. Oh, by the way, they're also uh, rebalancing your portfolio. They're doing tax loss harvesting, uh, replacing underperforming funds. Okay, so they're doing some things, but they're not spending 10 hours. But let's say they were. What, if they're spending 10 hours and you have $2 million, aren't they spending the same 10 hours if you have $200,000? Nicole, does that make sense? No. If, if, I'm, if I'm dedicating as a service professional 10 hours of my time, <laughs> right? Like right. how, what? Like even just taking it into your own business hours of like what you do within that time frame at your own place of work. Right. It's insane. Okay. So let, let's do the math that we have here. Okay. Let's say it's 10 hours of time. 1800 bucks. Yeah. Uh, 10 hours of time. That means it's $180 an hour. I, I would argue... That's a really fair rate to pay a professional investment advisor. Probably not enough. Okay. Yeah. Let's say it's 10 hours and you're paying a half a percent, which potentially if you have a $2 million portfolio, you might pay what we call 50 basis points or a half a percent for that advice, which is $10,000 a year, which Nicole would mean for that same 10 hours, instead yeah. of paying $180 an hour, you're paying $1,000 an hour. <laughs> same 10 hours. Oh my God. Now we have to look at the other side of this because that's what we do. Here, um, here. It's a little more complex than that, right? Because there are certain uh, complexities 
that come with having more wealth. Yeah. There just are more tax considerations, more estate planning considerations, these sorts of things. So we have to account there's a little bit of a a difference there. Um, We also have to look at it from this perspective. The the less an investment advisor charges, Mm -hmm. the more clients they need to make a living. Okay. Because you only have so many hours in a year that you can spend on this stuff. Yeah. So that is to say that potentially their attention to detail and servicing you is going to be less if they charge you less, which is sort of an obvious thing, right? You get what you pay for. Now, uh, to the same tune, but sort of flipped, uh, (laughs) an investment advisor that charges you under the what's called the AUM model or the assets under management fee based model, Mm -hmm. then they have generally a lot more overhead they can handle because they're making, if I'm making a thousand dollars an hour, I can afford to hire a couple people to help service you and give you great customer service. Yeah. If I make 180 bucks an hour, I'm going to be honest, probably don't have someone sitting at the front desk. I don't probably don't have someone answering the phones. I probably not in a nice building. Mm-mm. Like I'm not sponsoring the local 5k. I'm not even sponsoring the local soccer team. I- I'm, I'm just, you know, surviving, surviving if you would. By the way, that's tone deaf to say making $180 an hour is merely surviving tisk tisk on me. But come on. So I think it's a fair question to ask. Why do why are we comfortable? Why are uh, the vast majority of people who pay an investment advisor a fee, why are they paying it based on their assets under management versus the time spent? And Nicole, here is the ultimate answer. Because the market supports that. <sighs> That's it. That's it. That it's the classic. Well, that's the way it's done and people are accepting of that. So that's the way it is. And that's the truth. Uh, if less, uh, fewer people, I should say, uh, became accepting of this idea, it would change. And there are more and more companies going to this flat fee model. I, I know several advisors under this flat free, uh, flat fee, flat free. Sometimes it feels that way. Full free. Flat fee model. But then there's also stipulations, right? It's a flat fee until you have a certain amount of money that switches over to the asset based model. But I don't know. So there's your answer. There's your answer of of what's the difference between paying your advisor based on the money you have or paying the advisor based on their time. Uh, In a perfect world, I would pay my financial advisor based on the time they spent. I mean, if you go to the airport and you're getting your shoe shined, it's $6, whether it's a pair of $40 kicks or a pair of $400 loafers, same, same six bucks, right? If I send my attorney a contract to read, I'm paying them $200 an hour, whether the contract is worth $2,000 to my company or $20,000. If I'm mailing a, a, a birthday card to my nephew for 49 cents in the US Postal Service, or I'm sending my wife an anniversary card with a, a handmade free gifts card for a, a gift card for a foot rub that I'm giving her, that's the same 49 cents. So there's your answer. Coming up next, what is the right age to buy long-term care? All that is next on the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. Stop what you're doing. And hit Pete up on Twitter at Pete the Planner. Question the right of any man to 
opinion is strong against any can. But then again, many men are citizens of their own little world, so they ain't really fitting in. I'm in the background blending in. Camouflaged by the scenery, but I'm a champion. Revamp the camp again. Put down the stamp again. Talk to my Back on the Pete the Planner show. Your money questions answered. Our next question this week is, uh, Dear Pete, when is the right age to buy long-term care insurance? I'm getting conflicting reports. Angela. All right. Plain and simple. Nicole, do you know what long-term care insurance is? No. Glad you're here. Me too. Um, so long-term care insurance. Long-term care insurance is uh, insurance coverage that protects you, that, that funds your stay in, shall I say it, a nursing home. They're called long-term care facilities now. This doesn't say, see, we've come full circle because that makes a lot of sense. But if I say long-term care facility to you, do you know what that means? Or do you, is nursing home better for you? I'm, I feel like it's that whole like nursing home just sounds more pleasant to the ears. Really? than long-term care. You know, it's funny. They, it's so funny you think that because I feel that way too. Yeah. But the whole reason they're not called nursing homes anymore is because it had this certain connotation of like, like mushy bananas. I don't know. Like oh. people didn't like it. And so they wanted to, to change. It's like the whole prune and dried plum thing. Yeah. People are I like, guess assisted yeah. living sounds even better than that as well. Sure. I mean, that's another direction that yeah. the industry has gone as well. So here's what happens. Uh, long-term care insurance is uh, a, a policy you buy to uh, basically pay for your care if you're in a long-term care facility or a nursing home or an assisted living facility. Uh, here's the thing. It's really expensive. Like it's, it's, it's incredibly expensive to be in an assisted living facility. We're talking $60,000 a year, yeah. depending on where you live. It can be on either side of that by tens of thousands of dollars. It costs a lot of money. And, um, Here's why long-term care insurance specifically was created. Let's say, uh, Nicole, here's what's going to happen, and I'm sorry to do this to you. Let's say you and I are married. Oh. That <laughs> could take a weird turn. I may have to fill in an HR form for, for that. Uh, <laughs> Nicole, you and I are married, and we have our age gap. We do. Okay, which is 16 years. <laughs> 17 years, right? Did you say 60 years? 16 years. <gasps> or that you oh, said come on. 60. I was like, come oh, on. are we? What? Yes. Yes. 16 years. 16 years. Let's say old man Pete needs to go in the facility, right? I'm going to the home. You're going all right? to the home. Which, by the way, saying going to the home, also a bad connotation. And Nikki. Nikki. Nikki, I'm going to the home. <laughs> and uh, we have we have money that, that we've saved over our marriage. Oh, this is creepy. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's, it's even better just because of my special friend. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, forget about him. But let's say I'm 76 and you're 60. Okay. okay? All right. It's less creepy. Though. I'm still sprightly. You are sprightly young 60. <laughs> and so I, we, we've saved a bunch of money through our, our marriage and whatever. So uh, whatever. for me to go stay in a facility because I, I've, I've, uh, I can't no longer do some of my acti activities of daily living, which include like feeding myself and dressing myself and transferring myself and bathing and all, all sorts of things. Well, no, those are actual technical things I just went through, although fishing's great. Um, let's say you go to a facility and it costs $60,000. If I'm in there and we have a retirement plan set up in which we have retirement income, yet there's an additional $60,000 draw that needs to occur within our life to pay for me in the facility, 
on top of what it costs for you to live at our marital home, that's a problem, right? Yeah. It's a huge problem because here's what ends up happening, especially when there's a big age gap. I would spend down all of our assets in year, in just a few number of years. You would barely be able to survive on social security because we would have no more assets. And I would go into Medicaid. Okay, so Medicare is sort of health coverage for people 65 and above or people, uh, other circumstances. Medicaid is more of a social services um, insurance program for people that have no money, right? So that is to say, I will go have from being uh, paying my long-term care stay as a private payer, or I'd be paying for it with our money. Mm -hmm. And then I'd switch to Medicaid, which is a whole other way to, a whole other path to go down that. But here's, here's the bigger point. In order to protect our assets, in order to protect the money that you need to survive, not only now, but after I'm dead, because you're 16 years younger than me, um, you can get long-term care insurance. So I pay a premium now uh, when I'm a younger person. Uh, let's say I'm in my 50s. Um, and then that way, if I ever go into a facility, the insurance kicks in and then pays for the stay and you get to keep our money. Uh, Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so here's the, here's the million-dollar question. When is the right age to buy long-term care? Okay, so generally you can't buy it until you're 40 years old, right? That, that used to be the rule. Yeah. But the rule of thumb really is anytime you're buying insurance coverage based on your health uh, in your, or your, your mortality and uh, your health, uh, you want to buy it the younger you can, uh, the, the youngest you can buy it is when you want to buy it, mm -hmm. and the healthier that you are. Okay, so um, what's tough is people don't start thinking about going to long-term care facilities when they're in their 40s and early 50s, mm -mm. unless you've had a parent or grandparent go through that. Also, the longer you're paying a long-term care policy, the longer out-of-pocket costs or the more out-of-pocket costs you'll have over time. If I start paying for long-term care when I'm 45 years old and I don't use a facility for 40 years, Nicole, that's 40 years of premium payments. Yeah. That's a terrible thing. Yeah. And what we've seen since long-term care insurance is a relatively new industry, we've seen people lock in their premium rates. Okay, so we're only gonna pay $300 a month. Mm -hmm. And then because the industry is still figuring out how to operate, I'll get my annual renewal letter and it'll say, your premium is no longer $300 a month. It is now $480 a month. And that will occur and it'll go up and up and up. And there's some major issues in the long-term care uh, marketplace, insurance marketplace, because of these things. Oh. So I'm going to answer the question. The question is, um, <laughs> how much do you uh, or when do you buy? Unfortunately, I'm just going to tell you, your early 50s is probably the best age. But I would suggest there's a different form of long-term care insurance. It's a little less popular because it's newer and it hasn't caught on. It's called asset-based long-term care. Now, this is also a good time to give you a disclosure, a disclosure. If you would. Here's the disclosure. I am in a relationship with a company that sells asset-based long-term care. I'm about to read from their website. Uh, and so I just don't want you to think I'm telling you to do this because I'm with them. That's the disclosure. It just makes sense. So this is from One America's website. Here's their asset care product. I'm gonna describe it to you and you'll see why it's so appealing. 
clients receive a guaranteed amount of life insurance with this type of policy with asset-based long-term care. And all of it can be used for qualifying long-term care expenses and the premium is credited with a guaranteed interest rate, increasing the cash value of the policy each month. So you can use the coverage whether you die, you have life insurance, whether you go to a long-term care facility, it helps pay for your stay, or if you want to take the money out before a stay and before you die, you have a cash value. That's a lot more versatile, it makes a lot more sense. And um, I think sort of the old school way of protecting people from long-term care, that, that classic, I'm gonna pay a premium for decades and decades and decades in case I need the coverage, it has proven already that it is not effective because of the changes in premiums. Buy asset-based long-term care in your early 50s is my answer. Coming up after the break, here's what we're gonna tackle. We're gonna tackle, can I afford youth travel sports? That's next on the Pete the Planner Show. Hand on the beat. Yes, sir. Glass house. Yes, sir. Mr. Kinetic, Rusty Redenbacher. ATFU. Naptown. Yeah. Cashing in like the end of the game at the casino. I lean so the glare of the rear view don't hit me. Swiftly through the avenues and boulevards. Old soul playing on my speakers. Old soul but young and age of boss player. Not from the Himalayas, but my fam gave me Gary Indiana game. Grew up around the country with the mindset. Back on the Pete the Planner show. Answering your money questions. Or another way to say it, your money questions, comma, answered. Here's what we're tackling right now. You like that? I like the cough. That was good. I was like, do you like that? And then you cough. We got to get a cough button. It's on back order, isn't it? Cough it button. Is. It's, it's really bad. All right. Can you afford youth travel sports? That's what we're answering. Dear Pete, uh, I have got an eight-year-old son, and he wants to play travel baseball. My wife and I make $70,000 a year of household income, and I fear we cannot afford all that comes with funding Travel baseball. Can I afford travel baseball? Brent. Hi, Brent. Thanks for emailing me. This is tricky. Um, so I'm going to get a lot of hate email on this topic because people love to pay for youth travel sports. Let's get some disclosures out of the way, Nicole. We got it. First of all, here's what I'm not going to do to you for this particular question. I'm not going to create a hypothetical in which you and I are married. You're welcome. Uh, here's some disclosures. My daughter does youth travel sports. So I feel like I got to say that, right? I mean, she does gymnastics. So I go to a gym and I watch a bunch of nine-year-old girls do gymnastics on a pretty regular basis. But there's a track there. So you get a <clears throat> workout out of it, right? I do get to go work out on the track and then get upset at all the people breaking the rules of the track. But See, there we go. There, loopholes. Loopholes. Yeah. So um, here's how I view youth travel sports. And I've written about this at length before. Um, at length? I, at length. <laughs> I have. I have opinions. And, and, and here, oh, here's another disclosure. My brother-in-law is the head of a youth sports program 
that is the best youth sports program in the nation. Okay, so Nicole, we're not going to go deep into this. Do you know this? No, I did not know this. I, I don't want to go any further than that because I don't. I, I he didn't ask to be part of this show. But when I say that, this is not an opinion of mine. No. This is fact, and I got receipts. And you got the receipts. So after the break, well, I'll tell you about that. But it's true. I mean, he literally is the head of the greatest youth sports program in history. And I'm not kidding. It's true. Okay. So needless to say, okay. he's able to feed his family, <laughs> my sister included, because of youth travel sports. Okay. So those disclosures out of the way. Let's look at the ideal household budget. For those that don't know, the ideal household budget is ideally what you spend your income on. And it's uh, you can find it at PeteThePlanner.com. I'll link it below for you if you're watching on PeteThePlanner.tv. Um, and what we say in the ideal household budget is of your take-home pay, so after tax, after benefits, all those things, of your take-home pay, you can reasonably put 5% of your income towards entertainment. Okay, so let's let's just choose some numbers. Let's say your take-home pay is $4,000 a month. I'm gonna do the math for you because I don't know where you're at in your life with math, but 5% of $4,000 a month is $200. $200 a month for entertainment. Well, what in the heck does that mean? Well, that's up for you to determine. I mean, it can mean uh, cable and internet can be going to movie pass. It can mean subscriptions to magazines. If people still buy those things, people it still buy those things. I don't know. It can mean dining out extra on top of your food expenses. Uh, it can mean all sorts of stuff. Like it, it really can, it can mean your kids baseball expenses. It can mean anything, but here's the thing. The more you put into that category of the $200 you have to spend on entertainment, the less margin you're going to have for things like youth travel sports. Youth travel sports expensive, like crazy expensive. And it's not just the, the fee to be in the league. It's the equipment that you need to be in the league. As I just bought my daughter a softball bat for local softball. What did I pay for that thing? 40 bucks? I don't know. Right? So it adds up. And then since her little hands are growing, I had to get her a bigger mitt. had to get her bigger cleats. I'm like, quit growing. I start yelling at her, screaming, stop growing. <laughs> then I'm going to have to pay for therapy. I was going to say, this is just really racking up. So it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. And with youth travel sports, here's the other thing. No, you're not just going to travel cross town to play a group of nine-year-olds. No. You're going to go two states away and drive by tens of thousands of nine-year-olds to play against these other nine-year-olds that are paying for new cleats every year. So that means all the gas mileage, it means staying in a hotel, it means dining out, it means all of these things. So youth travel sports will nickel and dime you, even if you got a bunch of money. If you got $70,000 a year of income and you're sort of the average American family, I don't know what the average household income was. I think it's in the 60s though. I wanna say it is, I should know these things. You probably need to think how much of that entertainment budget for your entire family do you want to use on youth travel sports? Okay, so let's look at the positive side of things because sometimes people say, I don't do that. Well, in this moment, I am. Nicole, am I an op optimistic, am I a positive person? What am I? I, I don't you know. know. I'm curmudgeonly. I was just, you're upbeat. 
I have a sign in our office that just on the big board that says you're early. So That's when people get to, in wow. and of itself. So when you get to work, no matter what time you get there, it's just there's this this says you're early and you're like, oh, I did it. I did it. That, Some yeah. positive. It's you, encouraging. Here are the positives of youth travel sports in any sports for that matter. Uh, you get to learn to play as a team. You get to learn to take direction and criticism and feedback. Uh, you get to learn motor skills, fine motor skills, and gross motor skills on top of that. <laughs> you get to uh, learn how to, you know, be with other people. As a parent, you you get to show a kid how to lose. I mean, isn't that an important lesson to show a kid how to lose? Absolutely. I was a assistant coach for my six-year-old son's baseball team. I am, I should say. Told the kids to get in a line the other day oh. so we could do some ground balls. And this little kid looks at me and he <laughs> doesn't get in the line. Everyone else is in the line. And the kid says... My school doesn't believe in lines. How do schools not believe in lines? That is do a different not? episode of the Pete the Planner show. How does a school not teach a kid about lines? Like you're going to restrict their life if they can't stand in a line? What is that? I'm getting off track. Oh. There are amazing positive things you can learn from youth sports. I mean, amazing. That, that This is a really dumb opinion. Every kid should be part of that. But that doesn't mean every kid should travel. It doesn't mean that you have, uh, of your finite resources, enough money to travel for travel sports. That doesn't make you a bad parent. It doesn't mean you don't love your kids. It means you are not so fickle that you're going to make financial decisions based on the emotions in front of you when some of those assets and some of that income can be better used to create stability for that very child and the rest of your family for years to come. Now, this is a really uh, 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 dumb way to put this, but that's never stopped me in the past. If you're paying for youth travel sports that you can't objectively afford, especially in the face of personal and consumer debts, um, maybe underfunding of a child's college education, in a way, in a way, this isn't fair, you're contributing to the amount of student loan debt your child will have. Because if you're not pre-funding college and leveraging compounding to do so, then you're creating a situation in which you will be a victim of interest via student loan. So if you're spending thousands of dollars a year traveling to two states away to play against other nine-year-olds and then drive home, as opposed to playing to the nine-year-olds in the, the local league and then funding college, what are we doing? What are you doing? This is a cultural problem. This is, this is a shift in cultural resources and the use of those resources. If you're going to your nine-year-old, and you're not saying this to your nine-year-old verbally, but you're saying it with your actions, if you go to your nine-year-old and say, we are going to sacrifice financially for you to go two states away and play against baseball against kids after we've driven by thousands of other people your age, you are saying that this trivial moment is more important than their future stability. This isn't, again, me saying sports are dumb. I love sports. I played college sports. I like to get that in. It's true. Uh, it's just saying that, you know what? We can't put youth travel sports uh, on a pedestal at the cost of our stability. You just can't do it. So can you afford youth tra travel sports? Here's how you understand the answer to that question. If you look at all the entertainment costs you have within your budget and with youth travel sports in there, you're around 
you're good to go. You got it. Now, let's say it's over 5% and you want to move some of your other expense categories around to fund that, have at it. That's what the ideal household budget is supposed to do. Link below. You're supposed to do that. You're supposed to say, uh, I'm going to spend less on dining out so we can do youth travel sports. Have at it. Do it. That's what it's there for. However, if you're not willing to change your spending in those other categories, if you have significant consumer debt, and if you're blowing way past the 5% allocated to entertainment on a monthly basis, plain and simple, you can't afford it. And saying you can't afford it is not a shameful thing you say to your family. It's a powerful thing you say to your family that matters that's responsible, that teaches them something. Saying we can afford something in the face of not being able to afford something passes on perpetually bad ideas. How about that? How about Coming that? up after the break, is a $195 cast iron skillet worth it? I'll tell you next on the Pete the Planner Show. Every day living through the peace of my soul, I remain whole even in the middle of the pain. Even though my life has the rain, I still remain sane, writing and creating for my life. And my pen is my sword given by the Lord, and I use it to fight the tides of restriction. Sometimes I'm conflicted by myself looking at the trees too much and can't see the forest. Enemies shall inherit the earth, and I want to inherit something, something other than the high blood pressure and diabetes. So work is what I gotta do. Stay true to my enemy and water the trees that I sing from and look out for the lumberjacks. Running with the gale force wind at my back. Swift and enduring, I remain calm. Swift and enduring, I remain calm. Swift and enduring, I remain calm. This lays great errors to rest. Let me remain calm until it all calms down. Back on the Pete the Planner show. Your money questions. Answered. <laughs> We're going to keep switching that up, Nicole, until I, I find like something I, I like. I think we should see how many different versions we can do. It may have just hurt my hand. Okay. okay. Here's the question that we need to know the answer to. Uh, and also, if, uh, if you've been listening to the show for a while or watching the show for a while, this is also biggest waste of money of the week. So the question is both, what is the biggest waste of the money of the week? And is a $195 cast iron skillet worth it? Durable? Versatile, superior heat retention. Just of the few reasons cast iron has been cookware of choice for centuries. Centuries. Keeping these time-honored characteristics intact, Portland-based Finex, Finex, Phoenix, no one knows, has updated the kitchen staple to create a modern heirloom skillet that's polished ultra-smooth for searing and frying while its deep walls, I don't like that term, Yes. And construction make it also perfect for baking. Unlike traditional designs, the skillet has an octagon shape, uh, creating multiple spouts for cleaner pours and oh. sports an innovative spring handle that stays cool longer. The Finex skillet arrives pre-seasoned with organic flaxseed oil. Uh. Frank, do you have a cast iron skillet? Me? Yeah. Yes, I do. How often do you use it? Um, the two that I own are sitting in my sink right now. So that is to suggest you're a dirty slob. I am. No. A lot. Yeah. Oh, every day. 
We use our cast iron skillet um, two to three times a week. Yeah. We use it in the oven. We use yep. it on the grill. We it's use great. it on the stovetop. We make everything out of it. I want to own a stove, like a utility in every single thing of it. Sure. Yeah. I'm going to tell you what I paid for mine. Yeah. And you, you don't have to disclose. Maybe you paid, oh, by the way, what I just described, the Finex cast iron skillet, $195. And here's why I bring this up. I paid for my cast iron skillet, the Lodge cast iron skillet. The Lodge. The best cast iron skillet that there is. Yeah. From Lodge. Yes. I think I paid... $29, $39 for that? I was going to say, I think the big one that we have, we paid $40 for, and we have a smaller size one that was maybe like $20. Yeah. And they're great. It truly is the most perfect piece of kitchenware you can have. Yeah. And it cost you $30, $40. Why in the world would anyone pay $195 for something that is trying to perfect something that doesn't need perfected? They already perfected it from the get-go. It's perfect. How, ooh, I want one of those griddles. I want a, to do like your pancakes on. Totes. Yes. So that is this week's biggest waste of money of the week. And the answer to the question is $195 for a cast iron skillet. Is it worth it? No. No. A large cast iron skillet will last you for decades. You will pass it down to your kids when you're dead. They could cremate you in it. Take that $200. Oh. That was dark. Uh. Take your $200 and buy $200 worth of Lodge stuff. Well, that doesn't really get into the spirits of minimalism. Now you've got a bunch of cast iron. What are you going to do? Have a party? Yeah. I don't want to talk to people. Yeah. You ever think about that? Like the reason I don't have parties is really because I just don't want to talk to anybody. Yeah. Mrs. Planner, I had discussion last night. Probably not something I want to air on the air. Uh, so let's move on. <laughs> you know, Nicole, I, I want... I want you to imagine a scenario in which we're answering more questions here. And this time you're answering a question. We, oh. got, we got we got three minutes to do it. Okay. I want you to imagine a scenario in which you're out at nine on the town. You and oh. your friend. You guys are out having a good time. Having some beers. Beers. Probably one or two to three too many beers. Pro- yeah. And if for $15, I can make sure mm-hmm. that you're okay the next morning with no impact of those bad beers. Are you interested? Maybe. I don't know. I've got a pretty good good thing going for that. Let me introduce you to Blowfish for Hangovers. What? You're welcome. No. There are a lot of so-called hangover remedies floating around these days, but there's only one that actually works. Only Blowfish what? has a formulation recognized as effective by the FDA. Oh my god, I don't know if I trust the FDA, but in the morning, just drive what are you, conspiracy therapist a theorist about the Food and Drug Administration? Yeah. Jeez, that's deep. In the morning, just drop two. In the morning, you don't even have to take it after or, or, or in the, at night. You are so sold on this. Well, look that that you know the remedies before you go to sleep. Like, who can think of that? Yeah, no. Even if you set it out for yourself, you no have way. to unroll yourself from the carpet, <laughs> crawl upstairs, wash your eyebrows. Like, who has time for this? Uh, anyway, you gotta wash your eyebrows. That's crucial. Well, based on what I was doing, uh, you take the we put the blowfish <laughs> tablet. Doesn't matter. You'll feel better in about fifteen minutes, or your money back. Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes for fifteen bucks. Wait, how much? Like, 
How many hangover cures are included in this? I think I'm getting there. With summer drinking season approaching, you're definitely going to want some in your nightstand, desk drawer, or gym bag. And at just $1.50 a hangover, maybe all three. So you get 10 servings. Okay. So wait, I said 15 bucks for one bad night of drinking. It's $1.50. That might be worth it. Frank, we're getting on Amazon right now. I'll go have these with you. I already got some things in my cart, so... All right, uh, that's it for this week's show. If you want your questions answered, turns out that's what we do. Uh, go to askpete at petetheplanner.com. I say go to it. I mean, just email me. Like, don't type in askpete at petetheplanner.com in your web bar. The first time I ever tried to send an email, this is 1994, 1995. I had a friend in college, and I was in high school, and I tried to send him an email by typing his email address into the web bar at the top. Uh, wah, wah, wah. Don't do that. So ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. We are here to serve you, to answer your questions without trying to sell you things. So where else are you going to get that? Answer nowhere. Just answer another question. That's it. It's all the good time I have for this week. I'm sending you good vibes because good vibes are all that's in the budget. I'm Pete the Planner, and I answer questions. If you want to be on this podcast and have Pete fix your money right, then hit us up at PeteThePlanner.com slash podcast. You heard me. This is for information purposes only. It's not the Swiss financial planning the flights. Consult a financial divisor. Released from Everest, the fresh is fresh, and you can call me ET or to John Tesh. Let me bless this harmonic presentation. It's amazing, so amazing. I'm the reason. Salutations, I bring you love, trying greetings from a far away land. I am the sole controller. Put the remote down and let me take control. You're now a part of my zone, so enjoy yourself. Love, try can restore your health. I bring you greetings. Uh, salutations, how you doing? And is that how y'all say it? The tinkling of the keys is an homage to the little, little star. I sojourn over poetic descriptions of sound and travel to my other world. Out of this world, spaceship on my arm took me home, filled by the ink and the megabytes and the hypertext transfer protocol stronger than the Skynet and the Terminator. I push faders into warp speed, glide with ease, creating a breeze they call a black hole, event horizon, no rear view concerns. This I adjourn, this I adjourn, beats I burn, I burn, I burn, I This I adjourn, beats I burn, Salutations, I bring you love, trying greetings from a far away land. I am the sole controller, put the remote down and let me take control. You're now a part of my zone, so enjoy yourself. Love, try, can restore your health, I bring you greetings. Uh, salutations, how you doing? And is that how y'all say it?